Corner Fringe Ministries presents a one-part teaching by Daniel Joseph named The Parable of the Ten Virgins. Please enjoy this prophetic teaching. Today we are going to talk about the parable of the ten virgins. And actually, there's a reason I'm approaching this topic today. Last week, if you remember, during the course of finishing up the, the Galatian study, I made a statement that had stirred a little bit of confusion. Maybe, maybe confusion's not the, the best term. And maybe it's more appropriate to say maybe a little bit of wondering, okay, if you will. Uh, I stirred a little bit of wondering in regard to my analysis, and it was brief, but it was part of the message last week, my analysis of the parable of the ten virgins. And I alluded to the fact that the five wise virgins indicated that these are the ones Yeshua is calling them wise because these are the ones that get into the kingdom of heaven. Whereas the five foolish virgins, I suggested, are those who are lost. They are not going to be saved. They are going to be cast into Gehenna. They're going to be cast into hell. Well, based upon that uh, synopsis, someone came up to me uh, last week after, after the message and wanted to discuss the matter because apparently um, there's another teacher out there who suggests a slightly different interpretation of this parable. Uh, a teaching where this individual, he suggests that all ten of the virgins, wise and foolish, the names of being wise and foolish do not depict whether they're saved or unsaved. In other words, he alludes to the fact that they're actually all saved. All ten virgins. So in light of wondering about this parable, I've decided to do a teaching on this parable because I want to make sure there's a clear understanding of what Yeshua is teaching because that's the whole point of the parable. It is a teaching for us to receive. It is a teaching for his sheep to hear, to hear his instructions. Now, what I plan on doing today, let me just kind of give you a brief overview of uh, what we are going to do. It's kind of a hodgepodge day. You remember, I had nothing planned, but the Lord presented something. But it's a hodgepodge. We're going to look at the parable of the ten virgins, and then after we look at that, I'm going to take you somewhere else. I'm going to take you, uh, we're going to stay in the same book, but I'm going to take you to a different passage. It's, it's, it's a statement that Yeshua makes that has been uh, a statement of controversy, if you will. And we're going to look at that statement. I'm not going to say any more about it, but we're going to look at that statement because it actually relates to the statement to the words that Yeshua speaks in the parable of the ten virgins. All right? So with that said, let's begin with this parable of the ten virgins. Now, the first thing I want to mention here, before we really get going, is that Yeshua tells this parable side by side, back to back, literally, no breaks, no breath, back to back with another parable. The parable of the good stewards. Or some people would like to, to identify it as the parable of the talents. Okay? It's critically important that you look at this fact. The fact that Yeshua tells two parables side by side, back to back, teaching the exact same principle. Both of these parables teaches the exact same principle. Yeshua is conveying the same concept but he's doing it through two different illustrations, all right? This is going to be critically important for us to identify the second parable along with the parable of the ten virgins because it tells us, it deciphers 
what Yeshua is trying to teach us, what he's really saying using all these metaphors. Now, as you already know, when we see something like that happening, this is something where the Lord is seeking to establish his testimony. I mean, how many times have you heard me say where we've seen the Apostle Paul? He teaches a concept, and what does he do? He teaches it over and over and over again, back to back to back, but in different ways. This is what you're going to see today in the parable of the ten virgins, along with this other parable, all right? So with that said, let's begin. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. We're given a lot of information, just in verse 1 here. I mean, a lot of information. Number one, we're told that there is a number of the virgins. The number given is ten. Well, if you've read Scripture, if you've even read through the Bible once, you know ten is extremely significant. This is a significant number. There were how many plagues in Egypt? Ten. God's judgment was made complete. It came to its fullness at ten. Right? Go to the Ten Commandments. His judgment is complete. It is made full, if you will, based upon the ten. The ten big ones. You have the ten days of awe. Rosh Hashanah. The festival is coming up this fall. To Yom Kippur, or Yom HaKippurim. It's ten days. It's considered the ten days of awe, or Teshuvah, ten days of repentance. On that tenth day, it is made complete. It is fulfilled. It is done. Do you understand? And we can also look at Zechariah 23. Ten men from all the nations will come out and grasp the sleeve, the zitzit of a Jewish man's garment. Right? It's ten men. What does this tell us? What does this signify? It signifies the fullness of the calling. It signifies the fullness of the calling. When you look at Yeshua says something interesting just the chapter before this. And now remember these chapters, Yeshua is speaking to his disciples. And what he says, they're curious about when all these things are going to take place. Yeshua goes into Matthew 24, starts talking about the end of the world. And what he says is the gospel will go out to the four corners of the earth. It will go out all over. And then the end will come. I want you to think about that. The gospel will go out, the message will be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. There's a completion. There's a fullness. This ties in to what is being said here with the number of the virgins. We're given another bit of information here as well. And that is, there is something that all of these virgins possess. They all possess lamps. They all have these lamps, every single one of them. And we're also told that all ten of these virgins, they do something. We're told here, they go away, went out to meet the bridegroom. They went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, as we continue to go throughout this parable, it's important that we continue to identify the terminology that Yeshua is using here because the terms he's using here represent something. Everything that Yeshua states in this parable has meaning, has significance, such as the number 10. But that's not the only imagery we're given here. We also see that Yeshua uses terms like virgin 
and bridegroom. Now, this imagery is already found in Scripture, such as you can go, you can go to the prophet Joel. And the prophet Joel, I'm just giving you one example, he talks about the bridegroom is coming out of his chamber. All right? And then he goes on to say, and the bride is coming out of her dressing room. It's a messianic prophecy. These are prophecies that the disciples grew up hearing in synagogue. They would have been embedded into their mind. He's using terms, imageries that are consistent throughout Scripture, imageries that they understood. That's very important that you need to see the imageries that he's using here would have been readily available in the minds of his Jewish disciples. They knew exactly what he was talking about. The virgin, without question, the Jewish people would have understood that to be the bride. Israel is considered the bride, the wife of the living God. I mean, how many times do we see this throughout Scripture? We see it all over. And then also you can see uh, when Israel sinned, because God considered Israel his wife, his bride, when they sinned, it was considered as one thing, adultery. You commit adultery when you're married, right? And so you see these things, these terms that are being used here are clear to the Jewish people. This virgin represents the bride. It represents Israel, and they know it. But not just that, he uses the term here, bridegroom. Now, there's no question who the bridegroom is here. It is none other than Yeshua. He is the Messiah. All these messianic prophecies of the bridegroom coming, they're about him. And this is no great feat of interpretation to say that Yeshua is the bridegroom when he himself, and early on in Matthew, in chapter 9, in chapter 9, he actually calls himself the bridegroom. So there's no mystery here in regard to this, all right? So here we have these, the, this imagery. The ten virgins, right? The completion, the calling of them, the fullness of the calling of the ten virgins. And we have a bridegroom who is Yeshua, and we have lamps. So with that said, let's continue into verse 2. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish, Interesting. Right at the front of this parable, Yeshua divides the virgins into two distinct groups. They're not the same. There's a distinction drawn between the two. He calls one group wise. He calls the other group foolish. Now, as we continue, Yeshua is going to explain why these individuals bear the name that he has given them, such as wise or foolish. Look at what he says in verse 3. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So we're told that those who were foolish, you're foolish because you did not take oil for your lamps. And yet, the wise are considered wise because they took oil. It's very simple so far, very simple concept. But now we're presented with this imagery that we need to understand a little bit better. What are these lamps? What are these lamps that both the wise and the foolish possess? Well, fortunately for us, again, Yeshua is using terms, using imagery that is consistent throughout Scripture. Because the Word says this in, the, um, in Psalm 119, 105. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The Bible. 
The Word of God is the lamp. This is very clear. This is to be the light unto thy path. She is a tree of life who take the hold of her. Happy are all who hold her fast. Her ways are pleasant ways. All her paths are peace. The Word of God is the lamp. But today, we have a deeper understanding of the Word of God than ever before. Why do I say that? Because the Word was made flesh. It was made flesh, and it dwelt among us. It tabernacled among us. This is to say that the Son of the living God had come down, was born in the flesh, and literally dwelt with his people. So the Word was made flesh. Going to Proverbs. Proverbs says the exact same thing. For the commandment, where do we find the mitzvah? Where do we find mitzvot? Where do we find the commandments of God? In his word, right? The commandment is a lamp, and the Torah, a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. It's the way of life. Going back to that, what I just quoted you out of Proverbs 3, she is a tree of life. In Deuteronomy, towards the end of Deuteronomy, we find that there is a call to choose life. There are two paths, life and death. There's no intermediate path. It's life or it's death. So, all ten of these virgins who are said to possess lamps, they actually possess the word of God. They possess the gospel. You understand? However, according to Yeshua, in, in, in Matthew 25, 3, only five of the virgins took oil for their lamps, while the five foolish did not. So we know here, that the lamps represent the word of God, it represents the gospel, but now we're presented with more imagery that needs to be discussed. What is the oil being described here represent? What does it symbolize? I mean, it seems pretty important because this is the very thing that divides the wise from the foolish. This is the very reason the wise are called wise and the foolish are called foolish. It all comes down to the oil. So let's just think about this for a second. Let's follow this to its logical conclusion and ask ourselves the following question. What does oil do for the lamp? It makes it work. It makes it function. Its very purpose in life is to hold oil so it can give light, right? What was the function of the menorah in the tabernacle? It is a lamp. It's called, in fact, today in modern-day Hebrew, when they, when they refer to a lamp, they say, hey, look at that lamp. They say menorah. It's a lamp. What was the function of the menorah in the tabernacle? It was to give light. That's where the light came from. It shone forth. How did it shone forth? The oil. The menorah did not burn without oil. You understand? The whole purpose, the whole function of a lamp is to possess oil so that it can give light. And again, we see an underlining fundamental Torah principle that is woven throughout the tapestry of Scripture, and that is all things are established on the testimony of how many? Two or three, right? Lamp, that's great. It needs oil. Has to be established, amen? So what does the oil represent in Yeshua's parable? It represents works. The very thing that we covered last week, I went in detail in that, so we're not going to go down that path again. But it literally represents works. It's you literally taking the Word of God, 
and putting it to work. Right? It's you taking the word of God, putting it to work. Let me show you. This is something that I, I mentioned last week. Not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So not the hearers of the law are justified. This is, understand this, this would be like a virgin with no oil who has a lamp. She has the word of God, but she's only hearing it and not doing it. There is no oil being put into this lamp to shine brightly, to create light. All right? Let's look at James 1 and 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Again, going back. Remember that statement we made, uh, Paul made last week. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. This is a parallel statement. There is deception involved in regard to being a doer of the word and a hearer of the word. There is deception here. Interestingly enough, as we continue through this parable of the ten virgins, you're going to see there's deception involved. The foolish virgins are deceived, and they realize it. You're going to see that. So, the oil represents doing the word of God, actually reading it, applying it to our lives, and it bears light. And continuing in Matthew 25, verse 5. But while the bridegroom was delayed, now who's the bridegroom? It's Yeshua. While he was delayed, they all slumbered and slept, all of them. All ten of them, wise the foolish, they all slumbered and slept. Now listen to this. At midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. There was a cry heard at midnight, Go meet with the king, go. It's very important that you understand that we're given a timetable. There's a point in time when this happens. And let me submit this to you, and then I'll show you some further proof. The time that is being referred to here at midnight would have occurred at the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Yeshua. Because what happened upon his resurrection? The cry went out to the four corners of the earth. Go out to meet him. Go meet him. The cry went out. The gospel of Yeshua went out upon Yeshua's resurrection. We're dealing with a timetable here. Look at what um, James says in James 5.8. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The first century Jewish believers, they understood the cry. They went out petitioning. They went out crying. Turn from your ways. The Lord is at hand. It was all about Yeshua. It's all about the bridegroom. We've got to get ready. We've got to go out and meet him. Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. This is the cry. This has been the cry since the resurrection of Yeshua. Continuing to um, Matthew verse 7, 25 verse 7. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. Why did they arise? Where are they arising from? Slumber and sleeping, right? Were they not all slumbering and sleeping? And the cry went out, wake up, accept Yeshua, here's the gospel. Look at what Paul says in Romans 13, 11. And do this, knowing the time that now is the high time to awake out of sleep. 
that are rising. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The cry going out. We see evidence of Paul. In his letter to the Romans, the cry is going out. Wake up from your sleep. Arise. Going back to verse 7. Then all those virgins arose, trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. This is really interesting. You have these virgins. And clearly, it appears they're, they're on a what? They're on a journey. They are journeying to go meet with the king. You could say, this is their walk. This is their halakha. This is their journey. This is what is happening here. But as they are journeying, the five foolish virgins, they turn to the wise and they say, hey, we need some oil. Our lamps are going out. Well, as you know, at midnight, when it's pitch black and your oil's going out, what's the problem? You cannot see where you are going, right? You cannot see where you're going. Interesting statement that Yeshua makes regarding the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 15. They are the blind leading the blind. They didn't have oil in their walk, in their journey to go meet with the bridegroom. So listen how the wise respond to the foolish. But the wise answered, saying, no way, Jose. It's not what it says. They said, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you. you but you go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. You're on your own. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready, they were prepared. They had been diligent. They were good and faithful servants of the king. Those who were ready... They went in with him, the bridegroom, with Yeshua, to the wedding. Remember the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? And what happens as they go into the wedding? The door was shut. Now this is a parallel passage to Isaiah 26, where the dead, the resurrection of the dead happened, right? The resurrection of the dead happens. And he says, come hide yourself in your chambers, as it were, for a moment. Shut the doors behind you. The doors are shut. Verse 11. Afterward, the other virgins came also. Now, what happened? Those who are righteous, these wise virgins, they're with Yeshua. They're with the bridegroom. Now, the other virgins, the foolish virgins, came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. These virgins who possess the word, possess the gospel, they are crying out and calling Yeshua by name. Lord, Lord, Open to us. Welcome to the deception. They're confused. They do not understand what is going on here. Why is the door shut? But he answered and said, Surely I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now I can tell you this, after being a student of the Word for many years, you can scour the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and I can tell you, you will not find anywhere where the Lord claims to not know someone and that the doors are shut, that that somehow equates to you getting into the kingdom of heaven. The, the whole concept is ridiculous. Okay? When the Lord says he doesn't know you, it means exactly what he says. He doesn't know you. There's no relationship, right? 
And, and going back to last week, I, I mentioned about the book of life. Remember, that's the list. If your name's not in that book, if it's not on the list, you are not getting in. Do not be deceived. Right? Let me show you what Yeshua says in conjunction with this Lord, Lord. These, this cry that's going out from these people who are deceived. They're confused why they're not being let in. Luke 6.46 says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? This is why this is going to be his response. How terrifying is this? And we continue in verse 47. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. It's kind of a parallel, it's a parallel passage to Matthew 7. Luke 6, 48. Notice here as what Yeshua is going to do. There's, there's so much going on here, and I'm certainly not going to be able to articulate it all today. But it is so powerful. What we are going to see Yeshua go on to do is to divide two people into two separate groups. Exactly what's happening with these ten virgins. And he goes, he addresses the wise in verse 48. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. Right? The rock is Yeshua. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house and it could not shake it. For it was founded on the rock. It could not be moved. This individual is in relationship with Yeshua. Doesn't matter what happened to him. He cannot be moved. But now we go to the foolish. But he who heard, heard what? The gospel, the word. Right? Here's the word, but not a doer. And did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. At the great judgment, there is going to be blood-curdling screams, cries of desperation, cries of confusion by those who want to get in who call him Lord, Lord, but Yeshua is going to turn them away and tell them, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? You did not do the things that I say. And the question is, is, do you have your oil? What are you doing with this lamp? One of the tragedies that I witness in the Messianic movement, Hebraic Roots movement, whatever you want to call it, is that people begin to see things they never seen, and that is good. They begin to study the Word. That is good and necessary for us. It's for our protection. But then what ends up happening is they become fat gluttons. And all they do is study, 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 and there's never any application, and thus the faith is never experienced by those around them because they are not bearing light. They are bearing a bunch of information inside of them that never translates into faith, into light. You do not want to fall into this trap because you're going to be as a foolish virgin crying out on that day. When you read the Word of God, bear oil, put oil in the lamp, read it for application to change your life. Whatever you read on a daily basis, as you should be reading, apply it. Work on applying this Word to your life, and I promise you it will transform your life. You will be renewed in mind, in heart. It's very powerful. Those who are really wise, they go out, they do the Word of God, 
So make no mistake, this parable that Yeshua tells in Matthew 25 of these five foolish virgins, they don't make it. Do not be deceived. If we do not do what Yeshua has asked us to do, we are going to fail. The whole point of this parable, I think this is critical for you to understand. What's the point of the parable? What's the basis? To strike fear into our hearts so that we tremble before God and that we overcome the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, right? So that we overcome those things. Let me add some further support to this interpretation. I want to look at the next parable that Yeshua tells in Matthew 25, and I'm not going to do a study on this. We're just going to briefly look at it because what you need to understand is they are back to back, as I said before. There's no breath. The kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins. Now the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. And what you're going to see in this parable, they are identical. Just two different illustrations. Who do you think the man is? The man is Yeshua, traveling to a far country, who called his own servants. There was a calling. The gospel went forth. The word, right? There, he called his own servants, delivered his goods to them. Welcome to the word. It is the goods. Matthew 25, verse 15. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. And to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Oh yeah, he resurrected and is sitting at the right hand of the Father, right? Going on, verse 16. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. This is amazing. What did this wise man do who was given the word, who was given five talents? He went out and bore light. He went out and manifest the faith. He invested what was given to him and others. He turned a prophet. We as believers in Yeshua must be turning a prophet. And likewise, um, verse 17, And likewise, he who had two received two, gained two more also. And he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. How did that work? Verse 19, After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. This is judgment day. For he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. Verse 21, His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. He also uh, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, calling him by name, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. And how does he respond? Verse 23, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Why? Because he turned a prophet. He had oil in his lamp. Enter into the joy of the Lord. What about the guy who did nothing, who did not have the oil, who did nothing with his talent? When he who had received the one talent came to him and said, Lord, calling him by name, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. So this man, 
He had the truth. He had the word of God. He had the gospel. He was given the lamp, and he did nothing with it. And what happens to someone who does nothing with it, who possesses the beautiful word, who possesses the gospel, and doesn't do anything? We find out in verse 26. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. What happens at the end? When this man stands before the Lord. Verse 30. Cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Cast out. Both of these parables, the parable of the ten virgins and this parable of the good stewards or their talents, they're identical in nature. Do you understand? There's a reason he told them back to back. They tell a story. Same principle, two different illustrations. Now, what I didn't put up here is the rest of the chapter. I covered a good portion of it last week. So I'm not going to be too redundant here. But remember, as you continue in Matthew 25, Yeshua starts speaking overtly. He comes out of parable land and simply tells, hey, at the end, I'm going to gather all people to myself. And what's going to happen? He says, I'm going to separate them as a, sh- as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Right? This is what's going to happen. They're going to be on the right, and they're going to be on the left. Think about the wise and the foolish. This is what's going to happen. And to the ones on his right, he's going to say, enter in to the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they had oil. They did good works. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And the ones he cast away, who were foolish, who did nothing, their faith was not manifested, he's going to depart from him. Because they didn't feed him, they didn't give him a drink. Now, what I want to do is, I want to move on from this parable, and I want to look at that statement I referred to when we opened of controversy. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew as well. Chapter 5, verse 19. I don't want to begin there, though, because I think it's important that we make sure to keep the integrity of the context intact. So what we're going to do is we're going to begin a couple verses before Verse 17, it's one thing, hermeneutical 101, exegesis 101. Understand this principle. When there is a passage in question that you think you don't understand, the first thing you need to do is to put it in context. Go to the text that exists before it and read the text afterward. I can't tell you early on as I was studying the Bible, this is over 10, 14, 13, 14 years ago as I really began studying how frustrated I used to get. Insanely frustrated. I'd be like, this makes no sense. I don't understand it. And I freak out like I did. I don't do anymore. But I freaked out. And here's the kicker. If I would have just continued reading, nine times out of ten, my, my question was answered. So frustrating. There's no reason to get worked up. Just put everything into context. Learn from me. <laughs> Matthew 5.17, this famous statement. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. Remember, this is the beginning of an inclusio. 
that ends in, 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 in Matthew chapter 7. All of this is relevant for today. It's relevant to the parable of the ten virgins. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Yeshua is setting a foundation here. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So I think he conveyed his message quite clearly, quite well. Torah is still intact. Torah is still valid today. These are the words of Yeshua. And look around you, heaven and earth is still here. It's still intact. With that foundation, let's go to this next passage that is one of dispute, or one of wonderment, if you will. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, okay, and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's a peculiar statement, don't you think, following what we just read in Matthew 5, 17, 5, 18? How are we supposed to understand this statement? What is Yeshua's intention here? Is Yeshua stating that those who break the least of the commandments, and they're not just breaking them, but they're teaching other men to do so, is he stating, well, they're just going to be, they get into the kingdom of heaven, they're just not going to be very high in the totem pole. They'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. And so other words, and, and I have heard this verse, and this has taken me back several years, but I have heard this verse completely mutilated and perverted when people are calling a specific doctrine in a question, and the response is, is what you're saying is irrelevant because I'm still getting in the kingdom of heaven. Yeshua said it himself, even if I break the commandments, the least of the commandments, well, who's deciding whether the least, it's interesting, the individual himself, even if I break the least of them and teach others men, so I'm still going to get in. So don't question me and don't judge me on what I am doing. You can see how this passage just gets totally mutilated and destroyed. Unrecognizable from Yeshua's intent. The question is, what is Yeshua teaching here? I mean, what, what do we do with this statement? The first thing I want to mention here is the obvious. When we look at this passage, we see Yeshua draws a contrast. Look at this. He draws a contrast between two groups of people. Sound familiar? Those who break the commandments and teach others to do so, and those who keep the commandments and teach others to do so. Okay? Two separate groups. Now, if we allow for the totality of Scripture to speak to this, in other words, we allow the, the biblical testimony to come and testify to interpret for us what Yeshua is really saying, we actually discover something quite interesting here. Nowhere, again, will you ever find anywhere in Scripture that somehow disobedience to God equates to salvation. If you find that passage, bring it to me. I need to see it. Nowhere will you find it, let alone those who go out and teach other men to break them. You know what the Bible defines people that go out and teach men to break commandments? Literally defines them as false prophets. They teach rebellion against the Lord. They go out and teach peace, peace, when these people will not have peace. They strengthen the arms of the wicked, and they destroy the arms of the righteous. Read the prophets. Read Isaiah. Read Jeremiah. Read Ezekiel. Dealing with false prophets. 
This is the measure of a false prophet when they go out and teach falsely. Let me, let me give you some examples of what Scripture says. And I'll try to be as brief as I can. I didn't put this up here. I want to take you back to Exodus verse 20. Ten Commandments. You should know this because we say it every Shabbat. Listen to this. This is right within the Ten Commandments. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous of God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Okay? Showing mercy to thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Stark contrast wrong. Two groups of people. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Yeshua says this again, reiterates it in John 14, 15, right? If you're disobedient, what happens? In any way, look at this, Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Any of those things. The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of the disobedient. 1 John 3, 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Again, there's deception involved in this area. He who practices righteousness is righteous. And he who is uh, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. This is the truth. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Look at what Paul says in Romans 1.29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. I mean, wide gamut of issues here, right? Look at this. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death. But he doesn't end there. Not only do the same but also approve of those who practice them. It goes way beyond you just partaking yourself in a sin. It goes beyond that. If you even consent, support, agree with someone else's sin, you're going to be called into judgment. Let me give you an example of this today. Homosexuality. You may not practice homosexuality, but if you're out there supporting the movement, my friends, you are going to come under judgment. Do not think you will escape the judgment of God. You will not. Let me take this a step further. Let's go back to Matthew 5.19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of the commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now the word used here in the Greek for least is el akistos. Elakistos simply means exactly what Yeshua said, how we translate it in the English. Elakistos means least, all right? But let me show you how Yeshua uses this term in a different gospel, in a, almost a parallel-like passage. In Luke chapter 10, 16, verse 10, He who is faithful in what is least, elakistos, is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Do you understand? 
If you are unjust and even with that which is least, you are breaking the commandments of God, the least of them. You think you're really going to fulfill the greatest of the commandments? So looking at this Matthew 5.19, we really begin to understand exactly what Yeshua is trying to say here. He's not telling us they're getting in. Let me further prove this interpretation because as I've said before, we need to continue reading. Understand the context of what Yeshua is saying. Let's continue. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a powerful statement. And that is a standard. A terrifying standard. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not getting in. This is keeping that statement that he just made in perfect context. Let me continue. We're just about done here. Let me continue on in this passage, the context of this passage, just jumping ahead a little bit to Matthew 5.29 and see how serious this is and to see and understand what Yeshua is saying. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you, for it is more profitable that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. It would be a mistake to read this passage as I hyperbole. In any way, I grew up being taught, well, that's not really what you should. It's not telling you to cut your hand off. Well, let me explain something. If you take this message any other way other than literally of what Yeshua is teaching, you strip the passage of any meaning whatsoever. It absolutely has no meaning whatsoever. What is Yeshua doing in Matthew chapter 5? He is striking fear into the hearts of men. To the extent that saying, listen, if your hand can't control itself, lop it off. You'd be easier to control yourself when you don't have one. This is how deadly sin is. This is how important it is that if you have sin in your life, my friends, you've got to get it out to the point where Yeshua himself is telling you to dismember yourself so that you will preserve your life. And many of you might think, well, Daniel, that's so ridiculous. That sounds outrageous. How many times have we heard a story like this? There was a guy I heard about this, um, Aaron Ralston. I'm probably butchering his name. But he was a he was a climber. He was an explorer. I don't know if you heard the story. It's, it's out there. Guy gets his arm, as he's doing his exploring, his mountain climbing or whatever, gets his arm hemmed in by a boulder, literally crushes his arm. He's sitting there for five days. What does this guy do? He literally takes the weight of his body and he breaks his arm and breaks it and breaks it until it's there and he takes out a penknife and saws his arm off. Why? To preserve his life. That was the only way this man was going to survive. This is exactly what Yeshua is teaching over and over and over again. You know, in this culture, in this Western civilization, sin is taken far too lightly because you don't understand what's going to happen. You don't understand what's at stake. We don't understand the parable of the ten virgins. This is the problem. So with that said... Thank you.
day.